Hello to our listeners and welcome to Subject Matter Pros. We would like to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors, OCSDeals.ca and Branding and Promo for their support in helping us make this podcast happen. OCSDeals.ca is a cannabis directory helping consumers search better and shop smarter. Check them out at OCSDeals.ca. They're really useful, especially when you're traveling. And Branding and Promo is a digital marketing agency, and they help us with our website, social media, and everything digital. You can visit them at brandingandpromo.com to learn more. A quick look at the housing market across Canada confirms that real estate investments have been soaring in value and have been one of the hottest investment areas over the last few years. The average home has increased 20% year over year across Canada, and some regions have seen even greater increases. Now, while financial investments, cryptocurrencies, blockchain technologies such as NFTs have performed strongly, it is something that not a lot of people have a deep understanding of. And they also don't offer something tangible or real in return or exchange for your investment. Also, my understanding on crypto and NFTs is limited and is famously quoted by Warren Buffett, don't invest in something you don't understand. So that leaves the red hot real estate market as the focus for today's episode. Now your home will also be the single largest asset you own. And this is true for many individuals. So we asked our quote unquote resident financial planner, Jamie, to come back on the show and give us his view on real estate. Jamie is a certified financial planner. His passion lies in helping people achieve their goals and dreams to ensure that his clients achieve their financial goals and dreams He has dedicated himself to educating and working with them by applying his 20 plus years of experience in financial services. Jamie and his team offer personalized holistic financial planning for all stages of life to protect what matters most to us. So following up on our conversation regarding insurance, which really revolves around you, which is the most important part of your life, let's welcome him back to talk about mortgages today. Hi, Jamie. Welcome back yet again to Subject Matter Pros. Thanks for having me back. Glad to be here. Hey, man, you know, like I said in the intro there, uh, you're pretty much a resident go-to guy for financial (laughs) advice. So anytime something interesting comes up, we might just give you a quick call or shoot you an email to help uh, demystify some of the things we may have regarding those topics. Please do. You know, that's what I'm here for. And that's why I'm glad to be back again. I appreciate it, brother. All right. So let's jump right into it. So... A lot of people, you know, there's a lot of first-time home buyers. Um, so where should someone start in terms of buying the first property? Yeah, that's a great question, Canel, one that I get all the time. And really the first step that I recommend is to do the mortgage pre-approval. And why do I recommend that? That helps to give you a better understanding of what you can afford so that you can better shop in your price range. There's nothing worse than going out finding your dream home only to then go and apply for a mortgage and find out it's not even close to being in your price range. So to save not only yourself, but your realtor, a lot of time, potentially some heartache, going through the mortgage pre-approval process helps to give you a better understanding of what's that maximum you can afford and that the lender will pre-approve you for. And then you can decide what is realistic for you? What can you comfortably afford 
what's the maximum you you want to go to? I never recommend that people go right to the brink of that max because there's always going to be some unplanned things come up. If you're buying an older place, there's likely going to be some renovations. I highly recommend you get a home inspector to come in and take a look at things and find um, things that may not be obvious to you. Uh, they will go high, low um, into the attic and look for everything that they've been trained for. I know some great home inspectors. And so things like renovations and that will come up or even just furnishing the place. You may set a budget only to realize, okay, wow, I completely underestimated how much it was gonna cost to furnish this place or I want the latest and greatest tech tools or sound system or lights or whatnot. So you've got to leave yourself a bit of a buffer and also price wars. As you mentioned in the opening there, the real estate market is very competitive right now. And again, you want to leave a bit of a buffer so that you've got room to go up, but I don't recommend, again, you, and this is where a good agent will also help you, figure out what your maximum is that you're comfortable with. And again, this ties back to our first episode and the budgeting piece and looking at your cash flow. What can you comfortably afford? What will still allow you to save for retirement, save for travel, save to have fun and enjoy life? There's nothing worse than getting a place, moving into it, only to be house poor. And then your friends and family are never going to see you again because <laughs> every dollar is going towards the house. And you said an interesting thing earlier as well, you know, regarding mortgage pre-approval and making sure that you're not really maxing that out, not maxing it out, but understanding what you can afford. So from your experience, when banks pre-approve or when lenders, I'll use lenders as a more general term because there's lots of uh, individuals who will approve for mortgages. Uh, so when a lender pre-approves a mortgage, do they generally offer more funds then what would be prudent for the homeowner to like, not again, they know, they don't know everyone's individual lifestyle and budget and scenario in the same detail, just because they're strictly basing their decision based on credit scores and other financial metrics, such as earnings and debt service abilities, but will lenders typically offer a higher value or a higher pre-approval amount that would increase the liability, the monthly ongoing liabilities for lenders? Is that something that you've seen? Yeah, definitely. Um, most, well, I shouldn't say most. The insurance companies are the most conservative, um, which isn't a surprise because they are all about risk and analyzing risk. Um, so I'd say the insurance companies would be most conservative, then like the, the big banks, and then um, every other lender that's out there. But yes, time and time again, I've seen Clients get approved for crazy amounts. And I'm like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. We are not going that high. When we break it down, this is what you said you're comfortable with spending on housing. That will still allow you to save for the vacation that you want to do, save for retirement, save for all the other fun things that you want to do. So yes, I would say it's not uncommon for people to get approved for a very high mortgage. Um, but don't get too excited about it and really analyze it. Think, is that realistic for you? Break it down, understand the numbers. What does that mean from a mortgage payment? 
And then what are the additional costs on top of the mortgage, such as water, hydro, um, utilities, internet, what's included, what's not, what's extra, property taxes. All of that goes into the cost of home ownership um, and condo ownership is a little different. Sometimes the maintenance fees do include some of those like heat water utilities, sometimes they don't. So you really got to understand what all the extras are, what's included, what's not, and factor all of that into um, the overall housing costs or housing ownership costs. Yeah, because I think that's important where, you know, people don't sometimes get carried away when they see that, hey, I got a pre-approval for X amount of dollars. That means I can afford a home that costs that much. It's more so like, hey, this is what the lender will give you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this will lead to a good quality of life for you if you were to go that high. Because it's true, like maintenance fees, property taxes, just those two line items, they can easily run into upwards of $1,000 a month on and above your other investments, even for a reasonably sized condo, so. Yeah, exactly, and the pre-approval process has changed a lot too, where uh, some lenders will now have, oh, get pre-approved in 60 seconds. And I question how good that number really is compared to, I know with some of the lenders I work with, it's a very detailed process. And I warn my clients this ahead of time. Look. Um, we're, they're going to be asking for a lot of paperwork. I apologize in advance. It will seem um, very intensive, a little intrusive, but understand this is your biggest asset <clears throat> that you will ever own. They are taking on risk by lending money to you. So they want to get a really good understanding of what kind of client are you? What's your income? What are your assets? What are your liabilities? So the more exploratory you are up front in the pre-approval process, typically that lends to a much quicker, easier flip the switch when it comes to, hey, Jamie, I bought, now I need to convert my pre-approval into a mortgage because the lender's always gonna come back. So pre-approval is also great to lock in rates. So when you're shopping around, most lenders will lock in the rates from 90 to 120 days. That is especially great right now when we know we're in a rising interest rate environment. Rates are increasing. Bank of Canada will likely do a a half point percentage increase in the next one. So we know rates are going up. That's no surprise. There's lots to talk about it. That's another great reason to lock in your pre-approval right now or to do a pre-approval, lock in those rates. But when you finally do go firm on a purchase, the lender is going to come back, take another look through everything. Has anything changed? Have you taken on debt? Are you still making all your payments on time? Reevaluate you at that point in time to ensure that they're still good with giving you that money for the mortgage. And you bring up a very interesting point. Again, um, their pre-approvals do have a slight bit of a lag between when you're pre-approved to when you actually purchase for most for the average buyer, just because there is some search time and most realtors don't want to work with individuals unless they have a pre-approval just to ensure a slightly more efficient use of their time when they're out there looking for properties. Now, what kind of, 
you, you mentioned something really alarming, you know, that pre-approval in 60 seconds uh, or just really quick pre-approvals that may give someone a false sense of confidence in what they are able to access in terms of loan funds available to them to purchase a property. And then when they go to take that pre-approval offer and convert it to a formal mortgage loan, would that, so you're saying the mortgage loan process doesn't matter whether you do it at the onset or later on, it does require proper vetting as far as all the documentation and submission and everything goes. Yeah, exactly. So at some point in time, it's going to be two forms of ID, uh, proof of income, uh, most recent payment stub, notice of assessment or tax return for the last two years. Uh, for anyone who's self-employed, maybe three or four years, because obviously our income can fluctuate a lot. Uh, proof of all assets. So assets being anything that you own, investments, and then also proof of liability. So any debt that you have, line of credit, credit cards, uh, car loan, et cetera, all of that really gets looked into and explored. Maybe you already have an own property and you're buying investment property. So proof of that, what's the current value of your property? What's the mortgage on it? So really a deep dive into understanding what's your income? Is it stable? What are your assets? What are your liabilities? What's your overall net worth? What does Jamie Madigan look like? What's his risk? If I were to lend him 500,000, a million, what's the likelihood that he's going to be able to pay me back over the next five years to the schedule that we agree to? That's ultimately what the lender is trying to do. Make sure that they, if they lend money to you, that they're going to get payment for whatever the term is. And I used to work for a bank in uh, when I first graduated. My formal education is in finance. And I remember being at uh, town hall one time with uh, Rick Waugh. He was one of the old CEOs of Scotiabank. And he, he related basically saying something along the lines of what you said, is that the bank is in the business of lending money. They don't want to foreclose on your home and take ownership of your home because now they got to go and sell that house. That's not their business model. Their business model is, hey, I'm going to lend you some money. You pay me back that money with interest and I'm happy. I don't want to create a deal with you where even though I am technically the lien holder on your home, so in case you default, I get your home. That's not the preferred outcome they're going for because that's not their business. Exactly. It's just more of a headache for them, more paperwork for them. They've got to get their legal teams involved. Ideally, it's not something they want to go with. And that's why, for the most part, the banks are a little harder to get a mortgage with. They're looking for the top, kind of top tier clients. So Canadian residents, assets here, good stable income, good credit scores or great credit scores. Uh, and that's why often for newcomers to Canada, especially if they have assets in other countries, it may be harder uh, to get a mortgage with one of the big banks initially, uh, but not to fear it. There are so many lenders in Canada, as you touched on, and that's why it's always a good idea to work with a mortgage broker or a mortgage agent. They've got access to all the lenders somewhere in Canada. It's 40 to 70, depending on who that broker has access to. 
So there really is a solution for just about everyone, whether it be your first property, second property, fifth, tenth, um, and whether you are a Canadian resident new to Canada or whatnot. There's all kinds of lenders available at different tiers and private equity lenders who are looking to uh, lend into that space to make and earn money. So always opportunities for everyone. And that's why I don't want anyone to be too concerned when it comes to the mortgage front. Okay. And you talked about, um, you know, where interest rates are headed as well. We've had an extended period now of very low interest rates. And obviously, that's something where the banks don't want to just sustain it. They do want to offer, create an opportunity cost for borrowing money, which is effectively taken away when interest rates are very low. And I know earlier this year, the Bank of Canada raised their interest rate by a quarter percentage point, 25 basis points. And you mentioned that there are some expectations from the market that interest rates should rise by a little bit, uh, especially because right now inflation is overpowering any interest return. So there's really no incentive for anyone to hold money. So how should a homeowner or how concerned should a homeowner be about all this talk around the rising interest rates? How would it impact their liabilities as far as mortgage payments go? Or how would what kind of impact do you see it having on the overall just housing market? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Something that people need to be worried about. And it's one of the questions I'm getting most often now, Jamie, what should I be doing? Should I lock into a fixed rate, variable rate? What's best for me? And there's two ways to approach this. The if typically for a first-time home buyer, I recommend they lock in fixed. And the reason I do that is going back to, again, two episodes back to our first chat, the budgeting piece. It's good to know that your mortgage rate is set for a likely five-year term, because that's typically what most Canadians lock in for. So you're taking the guesswork out you know your mortgage rate is set if let's say it's bi-weekly you know exactly what you're paying every couple of weeks that's not going to change you can budget that for the next five years you're golden however when people renegotiate their terms and their mortgage comes up for renewal after that first initial term then i might say you may want to look at a variable rate a variable rate goes up and down based on the bank's prime rate, which is based on the Bank of Canada prime rate. So the Bank of Canada prime rate is the rate at which Bank of Canada lends money to the big banks. The big banks then in turn set their prime rate, and that's used to base what they will lend money to us as Canadians at. So every time the Bank of Canada raises their rate, guess what? The banks raise their rate, just pass it on to us. So that rate impacts the variable mortgage rate. So if the Bank of Canada raises rates, the banks in turn will raise their prime rates, which in turn is going to drive up the variable mortgage rate. And also line of credits. So line of credits are also based off of the bank's prime rate. So those are two things right now that Canadians should be looking at. Are you in a variable mortgage rate? If so, 
you shouldn't be surprised that it's just going to keep going up over the next two, three years. And to your point, Kunal, it's because we are at all time inflation highs, like rates that we haven't seen in about 40 years or so. So the, what the Bank of Canada is trying to do is offset that rate, the high rate of inflation and get back to more normal rates where we were pre-COVID. Uh, so if you lock in with a variable rate, you want to ensure that you've got flexibility to at some point convert to a fixed, which most lenders do have, and know that it's likely going to take a couple of um, Bank of Canada rate increases, likely two or three, before that variable rate ends up to where you would have been in a fixed rate mortgage. So I know there was a lot there in that answer, but does that kind of make sense why you would go variable over fixed and the difference between the two? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, just to summarize what you said, it's nice because with a fixed rate, you have certainty of payments over an extended period. There's no variability. Um, as the name suggests, uh, the payments are fixed. With a variable, uh, it's driven by whatever bank rates are existing. So as those bank rates change, it, it impacts the rate that the borrower pays. And you said something interesting where typically the fixed rate is slightly higher than the variable rate because you're reducing the risk of any interest rate fluctuation. So like a typical fixed rate would generally include one or two movements of a variable rate increase priced into their rates so that while rates are really low, there is some benefit to variable rate mortgages, not something where they're bad because they do offer a lower cost of lending than a fixed rate would until interest rate increases start coming in at that point. Exactly. So a variable rate was great as rates plummeted from 2020 until now uh, because uh, Bank of Canada had to lower their rates. The banks also lowered their rates. So variable rates got under a percent, which is unheard of ridiculous and anybody with a variable rate was laughing because they're like oh my god my mortgage is so cheap now i'm paying back more on my principal so yeah anybody who has been in a variable rate over the last two three four five years has really won been ahead of the game enjoying a really low rate uh but now obviously those will be increasing however rates are still really low like we look back at the 80s and I, I hear stories from my parents and older cousins where mortgage rates were like double digits and into like high teens, low twenties. Yeah, but they're different inflation environments. So these, those are not apple to apple con comparisons. You know, it's just a completely different financial marketplace that exists. So I'm going yeah. to be, be a little opponent to you there in those things and that it's, it's not a valid, um, you know, comparison just because given how, wages were adjusted in that period, how home prices were adjusted in that period it was very different to what, how the market functions right now. Now, yeah. another thing that you mentioned was transitioning from variable to fixed. Um, what kind, is that something very common that you see in a lot of, in a lot of variable mortgages that option for the lender to convert, or is that something that is added on as a 
provision or how does that typically work? And when does one get to exercise such an option? Are there any penalties associated or any costs for making that switch? Yeah, no, so those are all great questions. And that's why you really, another great reason why you want to work with a mortgage broker and why you always want to be asking a lot of questions. So definitely with the big banks, you're going to have that option with a variable mortgage to at some point convert it to a fixed, if you so choose. Um, the other lenders, uh, you'll want to really go through the notes, ask your mortgage broker, do I have the opportunity to switch? If so, can I do it at any point in time? Is there a penalty? You'll want to ask all those questions and truly understand what your options are. And more questions you'll want to ask is about prepayment options. And what I mean by that is, can you pay back your mortgage faster, sooner without penalty? Most lenders will, again, provide you with some provisions to pay back sooner, faster, adjust your payments, increase your payments without a penalty. So if that's something you think you may want to take advantage of, again, you want to ask those questions up front, read through the mortgage agreement in detail, and make sure you understand what's available to you. And does that appeal to you? Can you actually take advantage of that? Does it mean anything to you? Or do you just plan to pay the minimum payment and prepayment means nothing to you? So is it a good idea to pay down your mortgage as quickly as possible? Or is it better to you know, continue paying that? Obviously, the assumption being that if you don't pay down your mortgage, you take the surplus funds and you put them towards other investments or other strategies where you're making the money work for you rather than having to sit dormant in a checkings account that pays zero interest effectively. Yeah, no, and that's another question I'm always asked. And the way I approach it is there's a two-pronged approach to this that your mortgage, again, is your cheapest form of debt that you'll ever have. And mm -hmm. it's good debt mm -hmm. uh, because it's tied to property. So let's say for now, let's assume an average mortgage rate of 3%. If you can invest your money elsewhere and make more than 3%, and yeah, that's been hard this first quarter when just about everything is down. Uh, but if you look over the course of a year, two years, three years, or five years, whatever your mortgage term is, if you can invest that money and make more than what your interest rate on the mortgage is, I'm going to tend to lean that way. Absolutely. You have a positive rate of carry, positive cost of carry. It doesn't make sense. If you're borrowing money at 3% and earning an interest rate of a rate of return of 5% or 7% or 10%, you're making a positive spread there where you should be taking advantage of. Yeah. So anyone who is comfortable with risk and a balanced, advanced, aggressive investor, typically you're going to outperform 3%. Even a moderate investor who's not really comfortable with risk could outperform 3% in a given year. Uh, so to your point, it's all looking at the opportunity cost of money. And where is your money working hardest for you? And what do you want to be doing with it? The one exception where I would recommend you may want to pay your down, mortgage down faster is if you're a real estate investor. And the reason I say that is because if you're looking to buy investment properties, then you're likely going to want to refinance and borrow from the equity in your home to use as a down payment on another property. 
In that case, you likely do want to pay your mortgage down a bit faster so that you've got that equity available to you to then use on as down payments on other properties. And it's good to bring up that distinction that, you know, it's not always good to pay down your mortgage. There are some scenarios where you're better off uh, sort of paying down your mortgage versus not paying down your mortgage. And then on that theme, any difference between bi-weekly payments or monthly payments, obviously, you know, the way the mortgage structure works is that the sooner you pay down your principal, the lower your interest costs are because you have less money that you have to pay interest on. But at the same time, again, there's that opportunity cost question of the frequency. And I know like in Canada, they do the bi-weekly because most people get paid on a bi-weekly basis. So it just allows for a timing match of their cash flows, the incoming cash flow versus the outgoing. But is there any real benefit or savings? I mean, there obviously are some benefits to bi-weekly, but between choosing like mortgage payment frequencies, how much should a home buyer be focusing on something like that? Yeah, no, another great question. And for this, I also, not only their mortgage payments, but also their investments. So hopefully they're setting up pre-authorized contributions, which is regular regular contributions into your investment accounts, like your RSP, retirement savings plan, or TFSA tax-free savings account. So ideally you want these both to line up and make regular contributions over the course of the year, because to your point, you're actually eating away at it more, or in the case of investments, building up more wealth. So for mortgages, yeah, I do recommend a higher frequency uh, more often, and ideally align that to your payday. So if you're paid once a month, do monthly payment. If you're paid bi-weekly, do bi-weekly. If you're paid semi-monthly, do semi-monthly. However, most lenders will also offer what's called an accelerated payment. So look at that number and see if you can afford that from a cash flow perspective. So again, this goes back to your budgeting. And if you can afford the accelerated option, I highly recommend that. And let's choose accelerated bi-weekly, for instance. Bi-weekly, you're already paying 26 times over the course of the year. So essentially making 13 months of payments in a given year. And if you're doing accelerated, maybe even 14 months. So you're chipping away at the interest, chipping away at the principal, paying it down and paying it off sooner. So mm -hmm. definitely a good approach. And again, for someone who's maybe not considering real estate investing and not in a race to pay off their mortgage, doing the accelerated payments would maybe a better way to go to still pay it down sooner. Uh, but again, making sure that that doesn't impact any of their other goals. Yeah, because that's a really key thing that people need to focus on, on the holistic view, is that, you know, by increasing contributions in one area, you are limiting your availability of those funds in something else. And you do want to make sure you're well-rounded. Now, the first time, you know, that we've gone through, we've, we've been pre-approved, we've purchased our home, we got the mortgage. Now we want to do something along the lines of, you know, refinance that or like renew it rather when it comes up for renewal. 
What's the process generally like, uh, you know, that you've seen or what kind of trends do you see coming up for renewal? Is it as stringent or let's say if a borrower has been generally prudent with their payments, never having missed anything, do lenders just roll over the mortgage or is it a whole new application process? Yeah, great question. And that's not one that I often get, uh, but very important to know if you stay with your same lender, it's really easy. There is nothing to do. However, never accept what comes in the mail. <laughs> You're gonna get a renewal package in the mail. That's just them kind of dangling the carrot. Oh, let's see if Jamie signs at these rates. It's not the best rates. It's posted rates, but so many Canadians, again, don't ask this question, don't know, aren't familiar. Oh, okay, let me just sign on for another five-year term at that rate, mail it back in or email it in, whatever the case may be. And you're done. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. Shop around, call your mortgage broker, see what the best rates are out there. If you can stay with that lender um, and by them matching, beating, giving you the best rate that's out there, that's definitely easiest from a paperwork or administrative standpoint, because you don't have to go through the whole application process again. Um, they already know everything about you. It's just extending the term out. However, if you do find a better rate elsewhere, or maybe you didn't qualify for one of the big banks before, and now you do, and you, your preference is to be with them. Yeah, if you're switching lenders upon renewal, then you've got to go back through that whole application process again. And then at what level of savings? Because sometimes, you know, you could have... Uh, 0.05 or 0.1 percentage, or sometimes you see really small interest rate benefits that you may get from switching. And this may translate to, you know, $10, $15 a mortgage payment, or again, the, the, the end result is not that substantial sometimes. So, and I know balancing is very individual, but at what point do you just look at the convenience of this versus going, hey, you know what? To save $15 a payment or $15 a month or $20 a month, I got to go through this entire rigor of something. So what, what kind of balancing point do you just, or guidance do you give to your clients before when they should be very serious about the benefits they would get from switching? Yeah, no. Um... And any good certified financial planner or mortgage broker should be taking you through these numbers, helping you to understand, okay, here's what your current lender is giving you. Here's what this lender is proposing. If we switch, here's the savings to you over the course of every two weeks, every month, annually, over the course of the five-year term. So yeah, obviously, to me anyways it's gotta be some significant savings for me to go through the entire application process again. If it's five bucks, I'm like, mm, my time is made way more valuable than five bucks. So uh, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I'm just gonna sign up with, I'm just gonna keep with the current lender. So again, that's something that you'll wanna ask a lot of questions to your mortgage broker about. Is it worth it? What are the savings? Um, are the prepayment options the same? Is everything the same? Am I comparing apples to apples? Should I go through this process again? And usually there's going to be some substantial savings. Otherwise, to your point, why are we going to waste our time? Because 
everybody's time is precious, valuable. And I think the last two years have really highlighted how valuable our time is. And we've really got to prioritize it, make sure we're using it to the best of our ability. And doing a new mortgage application to save a couple bucks mm, may not be the best use of your time. <laughs> and as far as, you know, obviously, home prices have really been going up over the last little while. So it doesn't matter who you were. Odds are if you bought a home pre-pandemic, it's it's worth more now, whether it's a condo or semi-detached or standalone townhome. doesn't matter what part of the country you're in. Odds are your home is worth more. And then with people being at home and everyone with interest rates so low, you've seen a lot of user behavior where people have been refinancing their mortgages, increasing, pulling out more equity from the home. Uh, you know, there's products like home equity line of credits available now that play off that. And a lot of people have been using those towards consumption, like buying fancy cars or vacations or luxury consumption of goods and watches and what you make. Any just any tips or advice or anything that you've seen from such behavior and whom it may be applicable for and when it may not be the best way to go that route? Yeah, so I'll give you like two examples popping in my mind right away. Um, one, to your point, yes, a lot of Canadians did refinance over the last two years because we were pretty much tied to our homes, spending so much time here. So really remodeling, redecorating, making good use of their home and their space, because let's face it, we were here now in some instances, seven days a week, 24 seven. So do you have a proper home office? Do you have a proper home gym? Do the kids have a good playroom? Do they have a good space where they can do virtual schooling? So yeah, refinancing your mortgage to take some of the equity out to then put it back in your home, that is a great uh, reason why you would want to do it. Um, typically, by renovating your place, putting money back into it, that's usually going to help to increase the value of it and ultimately the resale value when you go uh, to sell it. Um, another great point, and I've done this personally in the past, is I've refinanced my mortgage taken equity out of my condo and thrown it into my RSP and TFSA because I had so much contribution room. I was never going to achieve that on my own in any given year. So again, with mortgage rates being so low, I'm like, screw it. I'm an aggressive investor. I can make way more money with that invested in the markets in my RSP or my TFSA than my mortgage rate. So that to me made sense. And sure enough, I have outperformed my mortgage rate every year. Uh, so those are two great reasons that come to mind where a refinance, taking equity out of your home for other purposes are good. Um, where may it, where might it not be so good? Um, maybe more of the luxury stuff where it's just, oh, I want a new fancy new car or a fancy new boat or a fancy new watch to be all flashy. I got to keep, try to keep up to the next door neighbors. No, <laughs> no, 
that's not like again it's all going to tie back to cash flow budget never mind about your neighbors and what they have or what they put out to show if you don't know them well they could be loaded in debt barely scraping by living off of their last penny if you're trying to keep up with that you're eventually going to end up in that same boat so for me it's always about What's most important to you? Look at your budget, look at your cash flow. Where do we want to go? What do we want to save for? Is it home purchase, retirement, vacation, all of the above, insurance, and making sure that we're able to put a little bit of money in all of those buckets and work towards all of those goals over time. And then I like the two things you bring up. One was, you know, uh, refinancing for capital upgrades to your home. Is there a limit though beyond which the capital upgrades may not offer the substantial return? Because let's say if your basement is not finished, by finishing your basement, yes, you're going to see an appreciation in the value of the home, which is going to exceed your contribution for a couple of reasons, such as you know, you've, you've borne the inconvenience of the construction process, you've taken something and improved it. But now when you're making modifications that are more suitable or preferential to your lifestyle at what point does that balance tip if it does tip where okay any additional dollar invested is like let's say if you want to create a dream custom closet is the potential home buyer or when you again if your home with your expectation that it's going to increase the value of the home dollar for dollar like you're going to see some value because you are right. investing but are you going to get that same exact positive return? Because there's a cost of taking this money up. You have to pay more in the form of interest. So if I'm taking out additional money, my expectation is that I'm going to get some positive value from it. So is there a tipping point beyond which whatever changes you make are just for your own good? Because let's say if you have a kid's playroom that you built and you put in a whole bunch of extra things that the other person may not be that interested in or your home buyer now may have slightly older kids so they're like hey it's nice to have a playroom but I don't have young kids who would utilize it so I wouldn't offer that they may have invested a $50,000 playroom but to me that $50,000 playroom I'm just going to tear it down so I almost want to use it as a discount so is there that balance point yeah for sure and that's where a good realtor and interior designer come into play because they're going to help you obviously you're going to look at what's best for you, your family, your space, uh, and do so accordingly. But by working with a good interior designer and realtor, they should also be looking at the resale value, resale point in time and saying, hey, Kunal, that's great. You've got young kids, but they are this age in five years. They're not going to use that. So do you really want like that shorter term vision or should we be looking longer term? Do you want only to appeal with families with young kids or greater appeal to fam families with kids. So yeah, any good interior designer and or realtor will help you with that to ensure that you don't get the blinders on and get too narrow on just your family and ultimately thinking about resale value. How far is that down the road? Or who knows, like if it's your forever home and you're determined that I'm here for the rest of my life, then it's different. Then there's there's all different, uh, you know, viewpoint that you put into it. Especially if you know yeah. you're going to be working from home, 
and you want to have a really great work setup so you can truly maximize your earning potential, then there's then it's not a then it's a no-brainer because now it's very personal and you see some value. And then you bring up something interesting regarding I love your your ideology surrounding, you know, if you have a lot of contribution room in your RSPs, your TFSAs, to use that as an opportunity to take it out. What kind of tax, tax implications, again, on a high level, uh, you know, because obviously every case is individual, but are there any tax benefits or any tax implications for taking out some of your home equity and transferring it to these registered accounts if you have room available for a contribution in those? Yeah, so there's no tax con- or tax consequences of doing taking money out of your home. Uh, it just means that you're going to increase your mortgage and have a higher payment to make. Mm-hmm. But then on the flip side of that, by contributing to your RSP, for instance, and maximizing it out if you've got a large contribution room, that's going to help to lower your taxable income when you file your taxes and potentially generate a larger return for you. Or if you're working with a good accountant, they'll just help you to break and then you can carry forward your RSP contributions to later years when you've got higher income and then it'll work harder for you. So definitely some tax benefits to refinancing and uh, trying to max out your RSP contribution room. And then lastly, while we're on this topic of refinancing, um, just any general advice on refinancing your home to invest in other properties? Because, you know, obviously with the markets going up, there's uh, people have this, this sort of expectation that things always just continue to go up. Uh, and again, you know, you do see some growth in, in the long run, but any, any just uh, advice or guidance you'd like to share on that strategy where people take out or refinance their mortgages, or take out the equity and use that as a payment towards an investment property they want to make or purchase? Yeah, uh, my advice there is just ensure that you're working with a good real estate agent who understands the area or market where you're buying that investment property. What's what's the value of properties in that area? What are they typically renting for? How hard will it be to find a renter to pay that value? Um, What's it going to be like being a landlord? Is it convenient for you? Are you going to hire a property management service to take care of things for you. Lots of different options. uh, And that's, again, why you want to have a good, solid team that you're working with. That includes a financial planner, mortgage agent, realtor, and that they're all working and talking together. Also accountant, because with an investment property, there's going to be tax consequences as well. Mm -hmm. So what can we claim against that? Um, obviously you want to report all your income, but also understand all the expenses and write-offs that you have on that property. No, those are, you know, I, I, it's just really nice to hear that it's not all easy. There's multiple layers of complexity to this. It sounds very simple to do, but these are fairly complex decisions and strategies where it does require a full suite of professionals to help guide you to make the best decision so that in the long run you don't get shocked with any 
additional bills, whether they may be through the form of taxes or higher payments, and you're fully understanding what you're getting into. Exactly. So it's never necessarily going to be easy, but if you've got a good team of professionals to support you and provide you with the advice that you need to know, it's going to make the process much more easier. And then, Jamie, we have to end with this. Uh, what is mortgage insurance and what is the difference between mortgage insurance and life insurance? Great question. And the lenders are going to hate me for this answer, but <laughs> mortgage, I have no shame in saying that mortgage insurance is one of the worst products on the market because it really only um, it's only valuable for the lender. So what I mean by that is with mortgage insurance, you're paying a level premium. And with every mortgage payment that you make, your mortgage is decreasing in value. So let's say I have mortgage insurance. I'm paying a level premium over the five-year term for it. So when you say a level premium, sorry to interject, it means a flat amount, right? Like a fixed amount yeah. every month. Yeah. So let's say 50 bucks a month. Uh, and... But over time, with every mortgage that payment that I make, it's decreasing. And if something happened to me and I didn't wake up this morning, well, the mortgage gets paid off, so the lender's happy. Okay, sorry, Jamie didn't wake up this morning, but we're good. Mortgage is paid off. A much better alternative, Kunal, would be term life insurance. And we talked about this a lot in the last episode. Again, it's going to have a level premium. So you're going to pay the same every month or annually, depending on how you set it up. But more importantly, your benefit amount is going to stay the same. And if I name beneficiaries on that insurance policy, the money gets paid out to them in a lump sum of money tax-free for them to choose to do whatever they want. So let's assume I had a partner. I name my partner as the primary beneficiary and then if we have kids name the kids as secondary or contingents my partner may or may not choose to pay off the mortgage if they can still support those mortgage payments on their income though they don't necessarily have to pay off the mortgage so term insurance is a much more flexible solution where money goes to the family instead Yeah, so when comparing term life to mortgage insurance, definitely unless there's pre-existing health conditions, term life is always, almost always going to be the better option. More flexible, cheaper, you name beneficiaries, and then they get to choose what to do with a lump sum of money tax-free, which may or may not include paying off the mortgage. Does that help to explain the two differences between them and why you almost always want to do term life insurance instead of mortgage insurance? Yeah, you know what? That is very interesting. I, and, and that makes a lot of sense for a couple of reasons, because like you mentioned, effectively, your premiums are going up on a regular basis when looking at it from a mortgage perspective, because now the contribution that the mortgage insurer has to make is lower. Now, what would be the just, again, I know every case is different. Uh, there's a lot of, Idols, 
But what would be some differences, you know, in terms of the monthly premium? Because let's say if, assuming someone doesn't wake up or, you know, there's, there's something a little bit more morbid that takes place, where obviously a term life payout, depending upon the limit that you've taken out, may be a better option. But, uh, you know, mortgage insurance, would it cover things like your inability to work or loss of employment and continued mortgage payments, or those are not included in that? No, typically those aren't included. Uh, there are some instances where it may have a critical illness or disability option, but it's not truly like the our discussion in the last episode where we went through those two in detail. So again, if you did proceed with mortgage insurance, you really want to read through, make sure that you clearly understand what does it cover, when does it kick in, uh, are you able to miss any mortgage payments if there was an illness or disability? And again, always ask lots of questions. Uh, but every mortgage insurance policy that I've seen, term insurance is always the better route, the cheaper route, and provides more flexibility to the family versus uh, covering the lender should something happen to you as the client. And that is something I did not know of that, you know, how mortgage insurance works. I mean, I really appreciate having someone on the show and educating our listeners. I mean, it's at the end of the episode, so I hope people get towards the end of it to get this real value from it. <laughs> but um, it's, it's a very, very critical point you bring up where sometimes lack of knowledge costs you more, you know, not understanding, especially if, if term life is could be a more financially viable option than mortgage insurance because you know when you're buying your home people will try to and if there's strong commissions tied to their earnings then the the incumbent salesperson may have a strong incentive to push you down that road yeah and exactly you just want to ensure that you really understand your options and I haven't had one client yet where term insurance wasn't a better option for them. That is, that is a very powerful thing. You know what? I'm definitely going to uh, include that as a part of our show description. Just, I mean, we got to it pretty late in the conversation, but I'll include that in, uh, in our show description. So at least to let the audience know that, you know, if you want to just get a little primer on these two things, then uh, that would be there. Or you know what, Jimmy, what we could do is we could also uh, you know, invite you back and just do a quick little 10, 15 minute episode on those two things. Sure. Because I, I think that is a really, like just understanding mortgage versus term life insurance. That's a really big, topic, especially if there's, like you said, you may not be well liked by a lot of mortgage lenders, but it's, it's really important where people just generally understand the difference between those two products and the benefits and which one may be better off. Right. And just one last thing that I wanted to point out, Kunal, this just came to me. I sometimes get a lot of people scrambling saying, Jamie, my house is closing next week. I've got to get my term life insurance in place. No. You don't. Life insurance doesn't have to be in place 
for you to close your home. Mortgage insurance doesn't need to be in place for you to close your home. They are both optional. However, I highly encourage uh, that you do get term life insurance as soon as we can get around to it. Because as we touched on earlier in the episode, your mortgage is your largest debt. So we want to ensure that we're taking the appropriate steps to cover that should something happen to you and or your partner if there are two of you involved in the mortgage, which in the case of most Canadians, there are. No, sir. Thank you very much. And uh, Jimmy, once again, you know what? This was a great episode uh, just to go over a lot of things mortgage related, talking about topics that not everyone wants to have conversations about. So rather than, you know, having a candid conversation, hopefully our audience can just listen in on this and get some inside scoop and clarity on how these things work, what are some of the processes, and then just empower them to ask the right questions to the team of professionals that they work with and use that as a great way to just qualify. Be like, hey, is this person being open and honest enough where they're willing to talk about some of these challenges. And as I mentioned, uh, you know, over the next little while, if your schedule permits, I would be thrilled to do a short episode on just mortgage insurance versus term life. And uh, just going over some of the salient features of both and uh, why one or the other should be the preferred route to go down. Yeah, definitely. I'd be happy to do that. All right, sir. Thank you once again. Um, To our audience, if any one of you would like to get in touch with Jamie, please visit our website at subjectmatterpros.com. And on the episodes page, you'll find links to Jamie's contact information and his LinkedIn profile. To our listeners, thank you for streaming and downloading this episode. We hope that you found it valuable. If there are any topics that you would like to recommend for future podcasts, or if you'd like to be a guest on our show, please drop us a line at subjectmatterpros at gmail.com or by visiting our site at subjectmatterpros.com. And finally, in closing, thank you once again to our sponsors, Branding and Promote for their help with this and ocsdeals.ca for their financial support. Thank you. And until the next episode.